to uh, introduce Paul Cornwell is going to come and preach for us. Uh, he's been invited by our session. He works for Crossroads Resolution Ministries and he's been invited to come help us as a church work through uh, some of our conflict and work towards uh, learning how to resolve conflict in healthy ways. And uh, he's going to come bring the word of God to us this morning. So I'm very happy to invite him to come. Thank you, Jamie. Well, good morning. I wish you were here. <laughs> I'd be able to see your face, you know. There's five or six or so people in the room, and what a great joy for me to have the privilege of opening God's Word with you, which we'll do in just a moment. But I just wanted to say thank you very much for your kind invitation to me and to our ministry to be here and to be part of your walk for a few days and uh, to think together about the riches of the gospel and the power of the Word of God and what it means when you and I actually apply those things uh, to our life, watching God by His Spirit work deeply in us. And long for that, you know, personally, and I know you do too as well, and uh, just, I just praise God. So it's a, it's a real joy uh, to get to be here today. So thank you. Thank you very much. I look forward to Wednesday night, as Jamie announced a little bit earlier in the service, and getting to speak with you again. And uh, Allison, my cohort, will be here with me and we'll be sharing with you some things. And we actually have an assignment we're going to give you and uh, would love for you to understand that and hear our description of it and then kind of dive into that assignment as we move forward in our work together. So this morning I would like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 14 to 17 is our text. I'm going to read that text for us in just a moment. But I want to put this text into context for you in just the work that I do. Uh, I started doing this work many, many years ago and began to see uh, some patterns that were taking place in the life of Christians, Christian leaders, leadership teams, of uh, whole congregations, as a matter of fact. And I came to believe that the text we're going to read is an essential text. Now, I know they all are. But this one seems to have a very special place in the life of the church today and needed in the life of the church today. Um, as I've continued to do this work over the years, I have only grown in that commitment, that concern, as well as that conviction that this text is a central text to the message of the local church in America today at least. And so I want to offer this text to you uh, to uh, consider I'll give you several points of considering it as we go through this message together. Uh, but I, and I'm not asking you to accept what I have to say as much as I'm asking you to, to consider it. And just ask the Lord which part of this message speaks to you the most. Make note of that. You know, maybe a specific part of the text, maybe one of the principles that we talk about. I don't know. But pay attention. Uh, too often the church has been distracted from the call of God that's so clearly given in, given in His Word and through the Gospel and certainly is clear in this text. I trust that we will see that. Uh, may He use it to change us, to make us more like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 to 17. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many 
be defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance for repent, to repent, though he sought it with tears. What do you get distracted by? You ever get distracted? Well, of course we do, right? Every day, many things distract us. Perhaps one of the clearest examples of this is texting while driving. Driving down the road, you look across the way, driving 35 miles an hour, the guy's a foot away from you, he's got one hand on the wheel, one hand on a cell phone, and his head is down like this. I mean, he's totally distracted. He has no idea where he's going. It's scary. Distraction is a problem for us. Phone rings at a critical moment in a conversation. What do you do? An interruption comes to that favorite movie that you watch. You know, I mean, these are, these are problems, right? These are challenges. Because distraction creates challenges beyond the current situation. Many times the current situation is real. It can be a calm situation. It can be a tense situation. All kinds of situations happen in our lives. And a distraction comes along and it actually changes it. It actually makes up something extra. It, it, it moves us beyond it. It also causes us to miss important details. Distraction takes us away from the very thing we should be focused on. Like one of the things we've learned in our work, that conflict, where we should be, we, we should be focused on our own heart. That's what Jesus commands. We should be focused on our own idolatry. It's a first command issue. We should be focused on those things, but we get focused on the offense itself or on the other person's contribution or the power of the problem that we are facing. We get distracted. Congregationally, it takes us away from the mission God has called us to. He's literally urging us to be a certain thing in this world. And, and it takes a back seat to the urgency of the problem that we face. And I get it. I mean, we all face it. We all have it. It's right there. It's part of it. But basically, the distraction of the conflict itself limits our ability to effectively participate in what is most important, getting to that thing that God is really after. You know, there's a truth that we've discovered, I'm sure you have as well, that it's inside the conflict itself. It's inside the challenge that you're facing right now. Where you find His desire for you, where you find His will, His leadership, His deepest work inside of you. In Philippians chapter 2, there's a great example of this right after the superlative text about the cross and about Jesus dying for us and being the sacrifice for us, actually making us more important than himself, actually taking on our interests, which was the need of a Savior, instead of his interest, which was communion with the Father, no brokenness with the Father. And he replaced our interest with his own. That's a wonderful text. And then the Apostle Paul applies it to us in verse 13, 12, 13, and 14. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work His good pleasure. And then he gets real practical. Do all things without grumbling. How are you doing? Without disputing. I mean, conflicts provides this opportunity to work out our salvation. To work it out with fear and trembling. Instead of being distracted by the merits of who's right or wrong. Instead of being distracted by the merits of the argument. And so Scripture warns us. It actually speaks to us very, very clearly. Don't, don't misunderstand. I'm up to something inside of you. Now don't get me wrong. The issues have to be addressed especially if they can't be overlooked, if they can't be resolved very simply, if they're confusing, if they create discord, if they create division among me and another brother or sister or within the church, they have to be addressed. They need to be. And they, even working through that relational challenge or that conversation of the issue itself is the opportunity to work out our own salvation. That's what he's up to. He's using this as the opportunity to get your attention, not be distracted by the conflict itself. I'll tell you, from a personal standpoint, uh, my mom was a wonderful lady. She's in heaven now. She gone to be with the Lord quite a number of years ago. She knew these truths really well. I mean, when conflicts came our way in our home, and they certainly did, I was one of seven kids, you can imagine. Matter of fact, the last few years of me living at home, it was four of us there. My older three brothers had already gone on, uh, you know, out into the world. And I lived with three sisters and a single mom. We were in trouble. At least I was. It was a difficult time. But mom, all through those years, when conflicts came our way, she was the most forgiving one. I mean, she knew that unforgiveness is a distraction. It's a distraction from the work of Christ within us. I mean, we get more, we know more about what the other person did or about the challenge of the difficulty we have than we do ourselves. What, what we contributed, how we were part of it, or the very work of God... In the middle of that challenge, what is that that he's after in me? I know more about that other person and their offensive behavior and their attitudes and motives than I do even what the Lord is up to inside of me. Mom knew that. The transformative work and the power of forgiveness comes our way and we get moved away from it. I mean, honestly, Jesus came into this world for one reason. He came into this world to forgive us. He achieved that task. He did it in amazing ways. To, and he produced something that no one else could produce. No one else has ever even claimed to produce. And unfortunately, unresolved conflict seems to steal that from us. It seems to rob us. Instead of us understanding that unresolved conflict is actually the opportunity to learn and discover His deepest work inside of us. Instead, it many times becomes the opponent of that, of what God is up to right inside of our own lives. Through that conflict, we lose it because of where our focus is instead of on Him 
and on what he's up to in us, on how he's going to resolve this issue between us. He certainly can do that. He did it with the whole world. He did it between God and man. He can do it between me and Sally or Sam. But there's a dependency, isn't there? Whether it's an opportunity, this conflict, or whether it's an opponent, depends on what you do, what I do, with the distractions that just come our way. I mean, do you allow it to be your focus, that distraction? Do you allow it to pay, cause you to pay attention to the merits of the problem? Or are you actually saying, no, I'm going to learn, I'm going to discover what is the Lord up to in me through this conflict? He wants something. Honestly, if conflict is unresolved, that is a sovereign situation. God is sovereign in that. He is up to something that you will learn through that and through no other means. Pay attention. Don't get distracted. Allow yourself to move into it and to focus on it. Never, I mean, never forget the power of what it means to understand your own sin, to confess your own sin, to repent deeply, and to receive forgiveness for those sins. I remember after becoming a Christian as a senior in high school, uh, I stayed at home and for the next couple of years just trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, so to speak. And man, I came into deep, deep conviction of how I'd treated my mom through those years, and especially as a teenage boy and especially in the house of only girls. Um, it was a pretty challenging time, and the Holy Spirit just took me to the mat, so to speak. He took me to the floor on what I had done. And so I approached her and ask her to forgive me. I repented of my sin. I listened. I tried to stay very, very focused. And I'll never forget what she said to me. I mean, her words just ring. I can hear her voice even right now. She said, Oh, honey, I never want you to feel the weight of your sin again. And the freedom of that power of released weight, responsibility, guilt, shame, the power of sin in our life, gone because of forgiveness and what Jesus Christ did for us. No other source for forgiveness other than the blood of Jesus Christ. There's not one known to humankind. Not one. Please don't allow the conflicts that you experience, I mean, in your daily life, at home or at work or at play, at the church, never allow it to distract you from living in His forgiveness. It is a gift. It is an amazing gift. In this text, Hebrews 12, 14 to 17, identifies elements of that. I want to just kind of walk through them, point out some points uh, that I've discovered in them, and help perhaps understand a little bit about this text. Before we do that, um, I want to pause and just pray and ask the Lord to open up his word to me and to you and to each of us. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for doing what you've done for us. We could end the service right now and not even talk about this text and it would be amazing because of what you've done for us. And yet the learning needs to go deep and the application needs to be personal and relational and real, real time. And so I pray now that as we just talk about this text for a few minutes, that you open it up to us, that you 
by your Spirit, would make one part of it or two parts of it stand out to each one of us as we seek to hear from you. In Hebrews chapter 3, Lord, you say these words today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart as in the day of provocation. My prayer for me, my prayer for each that hear this message would be that we would soften our heart to that which you point out, you bring to the surface, you focus us on. We would not be distracted from it, but powerfully be attracted to it and watch what you do to transform us even as we work out our own salvation with great fear and trembling. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus, for your gracious love, for your merciful way, for your gentle, gentle movement in our heart. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews is an interesting letter, isn't it? It's 13 chapters long, as you know. Uh, many Christians think it's too complex to understand. That is a norm of how people think about it. I remember actually being told that as a young Christian, that Hebrews is a tough one, don't read it yet, read something else. You know, go to Philemon, that's a good one, one chapter. <laughs> Just a few verses, it won't take you long. And we get off of what God is out for us because we, I think it's sad. I mean, it's sad to me that we turn away from a book like this just because of its length. I know a number of years ago, uh, I've, I've had a practice in my Christian life where I read a particular book from beginning to end and just read it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Not trying to learn it. I know what it says, maybe. Not, you know, uh, but I'm trying to get it into my heart. I'm trying to understand the dynamics of what God is out for in that message to me. In Hebrews, 13 chapters is a pretty tough, tough pill to swallow when you're doing that. But I did it with this, and I, I want to suggest some things that came out of that for me. I hope that this will create a little more simplicity to the book as opposed to that complexity so that you can press into it. If it does, I would be grateful to God for that. So I'm going to suggest a view of this amazing letter. Um, I think it will help clarify the writer's intent. I mean, the writer is out for something in us, and I think and hope it will do that. And I also think it will provide a framework that's conducive to apply the letter's message so that what he's out for me to learn, I'm able to actually do. So Hebrews, by nature, is an exhortation. Matter of fact, if you look at chapter 13, verse 22, the apostle writes and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. That's what he calls his whole letter. This is in summary. For I have written to you briefly. <laughs> That's the part I want to find out whoever wrote this wonderful letter. When I get to heaven, I'm going to find him and I'm going to say, what do you mean briefly? <laughs> 13 chapters, there's a lot of material inside of that. But the one thing that this, chat, this book is about is this word exhortation. Exhortation, parakaleo, it means come alongside of. It's translated by words like appeal, exhort, exhortation, and urge. There's this movement inside the word. It means that we need to do something. It's also translated by words like support, console, counsel, and contribute. An exhortation means that there's something, the exhortation itself, that will make my best path forward clear to me. That's what it means. He's saying something that gets our attention that we can't miss, we can't lose it, 
because it's there. Now, Hebrews is full of exhortations. One example, chapter 13 again, verses 1 through 5, multiple exhortations in one little text, not even building on it. Let brotherly love continue. There's one, brotherly love. Hospitality to strangers is in verse 2. The whole idea of people in prison is in verse 3. Marriage is in verse 4. Free from the love of money. Contentment is in verse 5. All of these are exhortations. There are these clear pathways forward that we, you and I, can have. Now, Hebrews is also a book that's designed around warnings. It's a book of warning. There's five of them that are actually in the text. I won't read you the list, but I can, give you, I can provide the list for your leaders so that you have them. But the point of them being warnings and it being designed around these five warnings is the apostle is saying, be careful. This is not a time to be distracted. It's not a time to be just take this thing lightly. It's a time to listen carefully and to press in. It's through these exhortations that the writer is calling each Christian, each church, and I mean that individual Christians are called to these things, and the church is called to some things. Some of the exhortations in the book of Hebrews are actually given to you as a congregation, not just to you as an individual. I'll point those out in just a few moments. I mean, what I think what he's saying like when he starts in chapter 1 of this book, he says, since God has spoken through these last days in and through Jesus Christ, his son, I think he's saying there's consequences to not listening. This isn't just some guy named Paul or John or Peter writing these notes. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, who has spoken to us in these last days. He's saying, be careful. Another thing he's, I think he's trying to say through that is there are clear truths that are given in this text. I mean, they're unmistakable. I'll point out a couple of them to you in a moment. And they are applicable. They're able to be applied in specific situations, in individual situations that you and I find ourselves in. And pay attention. Be careful. Understand not listening has consequences. Understand applying the truth is a is a provision. It's an amazing thing. And God is able to take you somewhere through that exhortation, which is the point. It's what he does. Now, I'll give you a personal opinion. I think that in all of these exhortations in the book of Hebrews, there are two major exhortations. There's bunches of individual exhortations. There's two that are major one is found in chapter 4, and the other is found in chapter 12. In chapter 4, I personally believe chapters 1 through 4 is a segment of the book. It's meant to be read at the same time and all the way through the four chapters. If you want to practice that, that would be a good thing to do, I think. Just read through over and over again. And what he's doing in, those, in that, cha- in that uh, uh, tra- trail, that t- story, from chapter 1 to chapter 4, is he's saying something to you personally. To me individually. So verse 11 through 16 of chapter 4 is a personal exhortation to every Christian. If you read those six verses, you'll discover that the person has to do them him or herself for him or herself. Me doing them doesn't benefit you. You doing them doesn't mean I am. They're individual. Like one is be diligent. 
The other is living word of God. Verse 12. Judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I can do that for myself. You have to do that for yourself. Do that before a living God that we are dealing with. Verse 13. This is the context of all of these things in these verses. Understanding this this prince we have, this, this shepherd we have, this one that we come to and we boldly run in in time of need to get mercy and to get grace. And it's free. It's ours. That's me running into that. Not saying that we can't do those things together. I'm saying they're intended to be a personal exhortation. Every Christian needs to be doing those things. Just think about it. If everyone in your congregation was committed to living out that personal exhortation of Hebrews 4, 11 to 16, what would be the difference? What would happen in the life of the church if that took place? So that's the first. The second one is in chapter 12. I personally believe chapter 12 is a congregational exhortation. It's decidedly different in nature than the one in chapter 4. This one you can't do by yourself. You have to apply it relationally. You have to do it together. You can apply it congregationally within all of you as a congregation and the nature of that. Remember the five warnings this book is built out of. Chapter 12 is actually one of the five warnings. It's the fifth of those five. Now some writers will say it's verse 26. Some writers will say it's a segment of that chapter. My personal opinion is the whole thing. We need to pay attention to the whole thing. Chapter 12 is an amazing chapter. It's it's written about the word discipline. The word discipline is used in in, in verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, two times, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, two times, and verse 11. Verse 11 being the treatment of this uh, discipline and why it comes our way, and it's meant to train us. It's meant to produce something in us, an ability in us that we don't currently have, and the discipline will take us there. Now, while chapter 12 lays the foundation for corrective discipline, it's not about corrective discipline, it's about formative discipline. We might call them spiritual disciplines. Spiritual actions that you and I can take and put in play, begin to practice specific things we can do together to become more like Christ. That's what he's talking about in this chapter. He's very concerned about how we relate to each other in this chapter. He's very concerned about how we view ourselves, how we view the other person in this chapter. And he's very concerned about his role in our relationship with one another. I mean, these are powerful little things that you, just, that you see. When you take that text and let it be what it is and just read it and say, you know, let it stand on its own, on, on its own for example, and not just try to make it some theological treatise. What I want you to do is I want you to notice how the writer actually blends these three concerns, relate to how we relate to each other, view ourselves and others, and view him, and he blends them together. And he does it right in our very text. For example, verse 14, strive for peace with one another, with everyone. Another translation says, Pursue, that's the word we've chosen to use, pursue peace with everyone. And, here comes God, and the holiness or sanctification, that part of becoming more like Christ, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
I mean, here's the blending of these three things, the blending of these three elements of what it means to know God. And the point of all of this is he wants me and you to be concerned about both those things and to pursue both of those things, not just one. Too many people, in my experience, are trying to fix the problem. Too many Christians are attempting to just get the problem taken care of. So you and I are okay. And that's commonly how men say it. Are we okay? Okay, Jamie? <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with you. And we're good then. That's not what this text is talking about. Peace in this text is the very character of God. Peace in this text is about Him. It's not just about you and I getting along. Or not dealing with the real stuff is what a lot of ladies would say to us. You guys are just covering this surface here. <laughs> You're not getting down to what's underneath it. Why don't you try to do that? Well, that's what the word holiness does. That's why we need to pursue two. We, we need to pursue both peace and sanctification. That, that little conjunction, and, it is a word from God. It is intended. I can't just pursue peace and leave sanctification off. I mean, when was the last time you were in conflict with someone and that other person that you're not liking right now and he's not liking you right now is very concerned about how you are growing to be like Christ? When was the last time that happened? As opposed to being very concerned about how right they are or how wrong you are or how much you've hurt them so it gives them the right to treat you non-biblically. I mean, when was the last time that I actually pursue my sanctification through the conflict I have with you instead of just trying to get rid of the problem. It's, it's both. See, this is a clear exhortation about the nature of what God is up to inside of us and they're essential to us. And He's warning you, pay attention. He's warning us to say, stay, stay true to this. Understand, I'm up to something inside of this. Now, one little technical thing. It won't be hard. This word pursue is used 46 times in the New Testament. 46. Same construction, by the way. Not any difference in construction. But 15 of those times, it's used positively. 31, it's used negatively. Now, positively is like strive for, like in the ESV, or pursue. And it's a word that means go after. In its etymology, the foundation of the word means run. doesn't mean walk. It means run. So you go after with intent. You intend something in this pursuit of this person. In this striving with this person. What do you intend? Peace and sanctification. So used positively, it means I want you to be benefited. I'm pursuing benefit in your life, benefit in my life, benefit in our relationship. Thus the word pursue. It's a wonderful word. 31 times it's translated by another word. Do you know what it is? Persecute. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. Persecute. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for Christ's sake. Persecute, same word. Go after with intent. Run, yes. That's what the persecutor does. He's out for your harm. He's out to get you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to hurt you. And he runs. He's persecuted. That's why we say persecute. Same term. And the point of this, inside this little pursue peace and pursue sanctification, God is saying, get this. Make it happen. Pursue it. You need to have intent 
toward these two things. Not just intent to win, or not just intent to resolve, or fix, or to solve. When we start seeing that, wow, God changes us. Becoming purposefully interacting with that person we're in conflict with for these reasons, and to prevent bitterness, to prevent these, these defiling effects that sin happens in our life. Well, let me just talk about the second one just for a moment. Only mention it. It's verse 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Or see to it that no one fails to obtain, I like that ESV, fails to obtain the grace of God. Why? That no root of bitterness spring up causing trouble. What is that about? See to it that grace. You know, some people say you're soft. You're soft when you use the word grace. You're way too soft. This, this deals with law. This deals with legal. This deals with wrong. It deals with sin. It deals with, you know, it's, it's tragedy. It's not, it's not, it's not grace. We forget a lot about grace, don't we, when we, when we say that. Because the grace of God is mercy toward us, too. As a matter of fact, mercy is the doorway to His grace. He prevents what we should receive. We should receive, well, the old southern preacher would say, hell and damnation. <laughs> we should receive what we deserve. And He keeps us from it. That's what mercy does. Mercy keeps us from it. Grace provides something for us. Provide something we can't provide ourselves. And he says, see to it that that happens. Provide. What does that person need to be able to resolve? Make sure it happens. But you know, it's interesting. This little phrase, see to it, you know what it is in the Greek? It's really interesting. Because it's an oversight word. It's like, I'm going to manage this situation and make sure these criteria occur. And the criteria he is exhorting us to make sure occurs is grace. See to it. It's the word episcopeo. That very same word that elders are called to have inside the church. Oversight. It's the very same word. It's as if the conflict is here. It's right in front of me, the situation, and I am to oversee it. I am... I mean, I'm, I may be the one in conflict, and yet I am to oversee it. I have to literally say, Lord, your position on this is what I want to take now, not my position in it. So I want to work on it, not in it. I don't want to be trapped inside the, 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 the literal distraction of the conflict itself and recognize you are trying to grace me and this other person, right through the conflict that we have with each other, and I need to oversee it. I need to orchestrate it in a way that grace occurs. That's what he's exhorting us to. See to it. Make sure that happens. Why? No bitterness. No bitterness. And it's a root. It's a living thing, this thing called bitterness. It's not just a sin. It's not just a sinful act or attitude. It's a root. It's a living thing. And it takes up residence inside of us and it destroys us and I'm really concerned about this in the church today I'm, I'm very concerned about it I see it I see the pattern people walking toward bitterness not knowing they're doing it if you were to say to them what are the what are the steps toward bitterness they couldn't tell you and we need to know what they are 
And when you look at Esau as the example, you know what I'm going to do when I get to heaven? I've got quite a few conversations to have with writers when I get to heaven. But I'm going to find the writer to Hebrew, again, whoever it was, and I'm going to say, why did you pick Esau as the example? And why did you pick somebody else that's a little better? I mean, that guy, was, he was raw. He was ruddy. He was sinful. He was arrogant. He was rebellious. He was all of these things. I'm not that. Eh, I'm not so sure. I think he may have picked the right guy. For every one of us, for me and for you, I think he picked the right guy. I could tell you reasons why. But I'm going to ask him why. I want to understand the nature of this challenge that we have. Because I would have expected him to do that. You know, to be rebellious, to have be a bitter man. And it's so interesting what happened in his story with his brother and how they met and how his brother thought he was going to be dead. He would kill him. Esau would kill him. And yet Esau fell on his neck and kissed him. It's not like it's all, you know, awful and sinful and terrible. And all. No, there's, there's humanity to it. There's person inside of it. There's, there's a living, breathing person inside of it and they walk into bitterness. You know what the result of bitterness is? You know what the final stage of bitterness is? Esau actually experienced it, and we're told that in the text. ESV says he found no chance for repentance. NESV says he had no, no place for repentance. He found no place for repentance. And the point is, inside himself, he could not repent of his own sin. Knowing what it was, he could not turn from it. And listen, that's the result of bitterness. Bitterness creates inside of me and you the inability to repent of our own sin. Can you imagine knowing what your sin is and having no means by which to appeal to God that you would experience the transformative power of forgiveness in your life at that very moment? Can you imagine that being true of you? That's where he got that's why I think he used Esau as the example. We need to hear this. You and I need to be diligent. We don't need to get distracted. Because if I were to summarize all this, I would summarize it in this statement, the ultimate enemy of the cross is an inability to repent. The ultimate enemy of the cross is an inability to repent. He died for my sin. He spilled His blood to cleanse me from my sin. He gave me the gift of repentance. And I can't even come to that place to where I humble myself enough to state what it is, to be specific about it, to recognize that bitterness takes me there. It's not an attitude like Psalm 139, 23, and 24. See if there be any hurtful way in me. That's not it. We defend ourselves and say, I didn't do that. And I wonder, I wonder if we're on the route to bitterness. Stills repentance, a gift from God from us. So I wonder what stands out in this text to you. I wonder what you believe, hope, think, 
this text would mean for you. My prayer, and honestly, um, to each of you, my prayer is not just for you, but it's for me. That I would discover his active work and be focused and not distracted from the deep work of salvation that he's doing inside of me and pursue that with fear and trembling. So Lord Jesus, um, thank you for what you've done on the cross for us. Thank you for being the one who is so amazingly uh, gracious and merciful, sacrificial to the death and able, powerful in who you are as our God to raise from the dead and live now, ever making intercession for us. That's not what we would be doing. And yet you worked so deeply that we might work out the very thing, salvation, the very thing that you've given to us that we don't deserve and we have the great privilege of. Use this, Lord. Use this message, use our time, use this text. Take it deeply, deeply seated. Put it into our heart. Let the power of what you're up to through your work in our lives, in our relationships, and as a church, as a church, do that work deeply, I pray, in the strong name of Christ our Lord.